agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hugs the government love. The government hugs the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my, well, not conservative counterpart, uh, Chase Law School professor Ken Katkin. Hey, Ken. Hey, hey Michael. It's uh, great to be back. Yeah, you know, uh, I think listeners were probably expecting a Trey and Ken show, and that was going to be the case up until actually a little less than 24 hours ago. But uh, as as listeners know, Trey has been uh, fighting for a number of years now at this point, uh, some very significant autoimmune issues, and things took a little bit of a turn for, for the worse, unfortunately. And so Trey was not able to make it for the show today. So I am jumping in here at the last minute. And uh, Trey, uh, if you're listening, of course, our, our prayers, thoughts for uh, a speedy recovery and getting you back to uh, a better shape, certainly with you. And uh, hang in there, my friend. All right, so we do have an awful lot to cover today, Ken, and uh, uh, such as, well, there's a breaking news story we'll get to in just a minute, and some thoughts on the midterms and looking forward to 2024, because, well, Donald Trump's kind of forcing the issue on us. Uh, uh, Some legislation that's actually making its way through Congress on a bipartisan basis. Yes, it does still happen. Uh, Joe Biden's talks with uh, China's president and... uh, a whole bunch of stuff, really, and we will get started on that in just one second. Okay, Ken, so before we get started, you uh, alerted me, actually, we're recording this on Friday, early Friday afternoon, and you alerted me to a breaking news story that we haven't really had a, enough time to think about, and that's still actually kind of ongoing, but I, I thought we could maybe talk about it at least just for a few minutes for our initial oppression. So why don't you kind of bring us up to speed, at least as, in, as to what we know right now with this story? Yeah, so several uh, news outlets, including the Wall Street Journal and Politico, um, are just starting to report that um, Attorney General Merrick Garland is going to be having a press conference this afternoon at which he is going to announce that he's report, uh, appointing a special prosecutor to oversee criminal matters related to President Donald Trump. And the, uh, the Politico report gets a little more specific and says that the two um, uh, crimes that are being referred to the special prosecutor, um, one is the uh, retention of uh, sensitive national security secrets at Mar-a-Lago, um, and the other um, are the efforts by Trump and his allies to subvert the 2020 election. Um, so those are the, apparently the two matters that um, some, some media sources right now are expecting will be referred to a special prosecutor in an hour or two. And of course, we don't know who that prosecutor will be and any of the details, but but I think maybe we can talk at least a, for a minute or two about what we think about the idea of a special prosecutor as opposed to this just being done sort of in-house. And I'm sure you have some just general thoughts on that, right, Ken? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm generally against it. Um, I think it I, I could be persuaded because I'm really just trying to think it through. But I, I, I think the concept of a special prosecutor generally would relate to the concerns about um, uh, conflicts of interest within the Justice Department. So that, you you know, it, since the Justice Department is part of the president's administration, that if there needs to be an investigation of the president or someone in his administration, you might need a special counsel. Um, I don't really see why one would be needed um, for uh, an investigation of Donald Trump, who is not the boss of anyone who works in the Justice Department. 
Um, and I do have some concerns that this is going to just introduce even more delay. You know, these 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 investigations have been proceeding deliberatively but slowly. Um, and I, I don't think that there, you know, there's a great benefit to um, in introducing anything that's going to slow slow down the forward movement of them anymore, as it seems to me that a handoff would do. But those are kind of my tentative initial thoughts. What, what are yours, Michael? I, I'm torn because I, I get your argument and I think it seems to be the logical argument is that that's what a special prosecutor is designed for when there are clear and obvious conflicts of interest. And but I, the reason I'm torn is that there are certainly perceived conflicts of interest. And then some might say, well, they're, they're perceived because Donald Trump and other folks have done a whole lot to make this argument that the Justice Department is completely in the pocket and biased and, and, and so forth. And so you don't want to necessarily give credence to those arguments because you kind of open the door and, you know, God knows where that leads. And so I, I guess I appreciate that. It seems to me that appointing a special prosecutor might be the smarter short term political move. But in terms of what it suggests longer terms uh, and as for the legitimacy of the Justice Department, the perceived legitimacy, well, I, I have concerns, some concerns about that. So I'm going to need to know more, I guess, but I, I'm probably leaning a little bit the other way from where you are because of those kind of shorter term political concerns, I guess. Yeah, although the legitimacy issue cuts both ways because the, the idea that um, that this would be, need to be given to a special counsel you know, I think it plays into some theories, um, I'd say conspiracy theories, that the uh, the Justice Department um, is, is partisan and is pursuing a political agenda, and therefore there'd be some need to to take it out of the hands of the ordinary civil yeah. servants there. And so I, I don't really see much reason to validate that kind of conspiracy thinking. Um, also, I would just say in, in history, although the very first special prosecutor that President Nixon appointed to investigate himself, um, Archibald Cox, um, was was a Democrat appointed to um, investigate a, a Republican. Um, Nixon fired him fairly quickly in the Saturday Night Massacre. And the one kind of iron rule of special prosecutors ever since then seems to be that no matter who's being investigated, whether it's a Democratic president or a Republican president, the special prosecutor must be a Republican always, or else uh, all the Republicans are going to scream bias. And I, I feel like that's a narrative that needs to be chopped off. You know, we've basically never had any special prosecutors since Cox um, who weren't Republicans, no matter who was being investigated. And I feel like if that's the if that's the narrative now, well, you know, Garland can't um, investigate um, uh, um, Trump because Garland's a Democrat. Um, you know, I mean, why was it OK then um, for, for, for Mueller to um, investigate uh, Trump when Mueller was a Republican, just like Trump was? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I wasn't aware of the the fact that they've all been Republicans. Of course, it's probably a very small end, so I'm not sure how much weight I'm going to to give to that. But but I I see your point. I think there's definitely more suspicion on the right, and and playing into that may yeah. The short term argument, I'm sure, is that well, if we can get a Republican who is someone who's respected by Republicans to make a case, that's going to have a lot more legitimacy in the eyes of a lot of other maybe moderate Republicans than it would be if we found, you know, a lifelong Democrat to do that. And that's the political argument that I think has some merit. But again, and this is why I'm torn and not coming down directly on one side, because I think, you know, you make some you make some pretty important points there as well. Yeah, so. I mean, I don't think too many Republicans uh, credited the Mueller report because Mueller was a Republican, but but Mueller was 
pick because he was a yeah. Republican. Um, and, uh, um, you know, I, I just think that the, the idea that, you know, the, the, the idea that any, any Trumpers are going to um, accept the legitimacy of an indictment of Trump sure. because it yeah. comes from a Republican. I don't I don't buy that at all. No, no. Yeah, so yeah. I, I think that. Yeah so, yeah. so I think the question isn't about what the Trumpers are going to accept. The, the question is about whether the Justice Department is going to keep buying into this narrative that because Republicans scream and scream and scream about political bias, that every investigation of every president and every investigation of every former president can only be done by Republicans ever. Um, I, I, just, I don't think it's helpful to, to, to give life to that narrative. Yeah. And, and, and you know, again, I think that's a good point. But I, but I also think there are the kind of diehard election deniers, you know, red hat wearing, trucker hat wearing MAGA Republicans who you're right. I mean, Matt Gates could get up there and start yelling about Trump being guilty and they wouldn't buy into that sort of thing. But I also think that there's a not insignificant number of Republicans who are hearing that from their right flank and saying, yeah, I don't know, maybe there's something to that who are convincible. And so I think that that's where this is being directed toward. And that's why, again, I, I think that this is maybe not a not a bad move by Garland, who I think is a uh, not only a straight shooter, but also a, bear, a very politically savvy guy. You know, I'm not going to say it's a terrible move, um, and I, I agree there could be some short-term political uh, benefits from it, but I want to see you know, who, who, the, who sure. the, the special counsel is, and I also want to see how much um, that special counsel inherits the, 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 the civil servants in the Justice Department who've already been working this matter for yeah. a couple of years, because I think it's important not to have this be something that introduces any significant delay. Yeah, no, that, that, that seems reasonable. Yeah. So, and of course, we will have more on this in weeks to come because this will not be a short term thing. So stay tuned for that. But let's move on from that into, well, the 2022 midterms, the uh, the results are almost all in. And of course, Republicans generally disappointed with their underwhelming showing both in Congress and at the state level. But we do know now that the Republicans will have a narrow, a very narrow majority in the House, at least in the 118th Congress. And last week, Jay and I talked about kind of our overall impressions, including the lessons that we felt each party should take away from what happened. And and Ken, I thought maybe we could start there today with your overall thoughts, because they might be a little bit different from what I took away from that. So what what looking back on these kind of in total, now that we more or less know the, the parameters of what happened, what, what do you take away from this? First, I want to start by taking the politics guy's victory lap and say my, my, my predictions were better than any of the rest of you guys. <laughs> I, I predicted 50 or 51 Dems in the Senate, um, and I predicted that the Republicans would be ahead by two or three seats. And uh, um, I think those are both basically right. The, the only minor part of my prediction that I got wrong, and I, I, I'll acknowledge it, is um, I thought that although I thought the Republicans would, would take the House narrowly, and they did, I thought that would be entirely because of gerrymandering and that the Dems would easily win the national popular vote in the House. Um, that didn't happen. The, the Republicans won the national popular vote in the House by about the same percentage that they, they won the seats in the House. So I will have to say that a lot of my concerns about gerrymandering um, didn't play out exactly as I expected, but the numbers did play out exactly as I expected. So, gotcha. So. Um, Victory, but yeah. not total and complete victory for Ken Katkin. Yeah, That's what right, we're saying. Right, right. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. But the uh, um, yeah, in terms of the lessons to be learned, um, 
you know, the, I think the 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 country is really um, kind of calcifying in, in its political views, and uh, so that you know, when you look at history and you look at the traditional, you know, bigger swings in a midterm election, um, I think that's a thing of the past because not only because of the gerrymandering and because of the sorting out of people into red states and blue states, um, which is you know pretty impervious to short term change, but I but also I think just because you know. You know, uh, the, the number of, of swing voters, the number of voters um, who could potentially vote for Republicans or Democrats, um, you know, there's still some. And in, in, in this election, that, that, that some swinging did determine some some outcomes. But uh, but it's you know, it's just less than ever. And I think that means it's going to be smaller numbers of shifts than ever based on, on those kind of voters and that elections are going to be much, much, much more about uh, turnout. Um, than about persuasion, I suppose. Yeah, that that sounds right to me as well. Definitely. Um, any any other general thoughts? I mean, I, I, one concern that I I mentioned last week was that I, I certainly hope that the that the Democrats uh, don't look at this election and say, well, you know, I guess we're more or less on the right track because I think that that is a uh, a dangerous message to take away. There was a Republican consultant who after the midterm said something to effect that, well, the public decided that our crazy is a little less acceptable than their crazy. And, and I don't know if I would have put it exactly that way, but, but, but I kind of get what he was saying. And I think he's onto something there. Yeah. I don't think I agree with that. I, I think the Democrats, it's hard for me to concretely say, what policies are you talking about? I'm pretty in sync with the policies of the current uh, democratic Congress. And, uh, you know, to, to say that they're on the wrong track, I guess I'd want more specifics about what what policies would you change? Yeah, I, I think in general it's referring to the policies based on uh, diversity, you know, the, what they call the wokeism sort of stuff and feeling that the Democratic Party is much more aligned with college educated elites as opposed to kind of the, the traditional Democratic uh, working class uh, high school educated base, what used to be base of the Republican Party that's not or Democratic Party that's more and more uh, affiliated with Republicans. Yeah, so I think two things I'd say about that. They might go a little contrary to each other, but um, you know, I, 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 you know, I work in a university. In fact, I work in the same university that you do, yep. and 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 I get concerned sometimes about the wokeism too in in contexts like that. I'm I'm not you know all about that kind of thing, and and I think you know in higher ed, um, I I think oftentimes um, the the whole DEI thing you know goes too far. Uh, however, um, I don't think that at all about the, 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 the policies of the Democrats in the United States Congress. And I think what you're really seeing there is not that, that, any, any, that the Democratic Congress has pursued any policies that, that don't involve you know, simple things like protecting the civil rights of African-Americans to be allowed to vote or to not be um, killed too frequently by police officers for no reason. You know, I, I hope everybody would support those kind of policies. And, and, and the idea that, um, you know, that the, 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 the Democratic caucus in the Congress is, is going way beyond that and, and is, is going to some kind of extreme wokeism, I think that's, that's purely a, a Republican propaganda. It has no basis in reality. And therefore, there's, there's, no, there's nothing that the Dems could do in terms of changing their policies to counteract that. And it's really just something that has to be fought on the, on the communications level, not on the policy level. 
Do, do you think that I think that there's a lot to that argument. Do you think that it works the other way that uh, Republicans are right in saying that, hey, we're not mostly Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and that sort of thing. And so characterizing the party that way, it's being sort of unfair to what real Republican policies are. And we're not against you know cutting and running in Ukraine. We're not against, you know, all of we're not for you know this the kind of these sort of things that these extremists on the right are for, though have, some of them happen to be in Congress. No, I don't think it's symmetric like that at all, because I'll use the examples of the suburban districts in New York that flipped, right? So in, in New York, you had um, one of the seats was Sean Patrick Maloney's seat. So he was, in fact, the, the chair of the Democratic uh, Congressional Campaign Committee. Um, his seat is in Westchester County and, and goes, I think, even a little further north up towards Hudson, New York. So suburban New York City. And there was another seat on Long Island in suburban New York City. And I think... Um, these, by, by Republican standards, the Republicans who won those seats would be probably relatively moderate Republicans. That's not the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the party, um, who could never possibly win in, in suburban New York City. But, but yet, um, you know, the main issue that they won on was totally falsely demagoguing that, um, that, that crime is going way up in New York City um, and that all of that is because of defund the police. Now, that kind of thing has no bearing in reality. Crime's not going up in New York City any faster than it's going up anywhere else. And the opposite of defund the police, you know, New York City's mayor is an extremely pro-police mayor. Um, and there's no policies that, that happened in New York City that, that, that were in any way anti-police. And, and they, they um, you know, and, and crime hasn't really, I mean, crime's gone up there a little, but it's gone up everywhere a little. Um, and so, you know, sort of creating this idea well, Democrats are all into wokeism, and if you allow those kind of people to run things, you're going to you know, there's going to be chaos and disorder and crime. Um, it's a totally false narrative, but it was the one that the moderate Republicans ran on in in suburban New York, and it was the one that took them to victory. Yeah, I, well, I, I see what you're saying. I don't know that it's said. I would call it mischaracterization, perhaps exaggeration, but not necessarily a, a totally false narrative. The story I hear from a lot of folks on the right is, well, you take a look at the most uh, the cities with the most crime. They tend to be what they call Democrat cities. Right. And now uh, that, that's that may be true, but it's true. It isn't for, true. It well, isn't true, Michael. It isn't true. It isn't I, true. New York City's crime rate is so much lower than Oklahoma City's crime rate. Well, I mean, I'm just I'm just I'm just pulling up a list here of most dangerous cities, violent crimes per thousand person in the first half of 2022. And OK, the first two, Little Rock and Memphis and then Tacoma, Detroit, Pueblo, Cleveland, my hometown, Springfield, Lansing, Kansas City and Chattanooga are the top 10. Now, I'm not I'm not positive on what the city governments are there, certainly, but there's a fair, I, I would guess that that's probably a majority of them. Well, I guess what I'm saying is that I, I, a lot of that's in red states. A lot of it's, a lot of it's are, a lot of it I think are blue cities in red states because you're going to have more crime. My point is, is you're, you're going to have more crime, other things being equal in urban areas, not because they're controlled by Democrats, but for other reasons. And so this just is a is I won't call it a coincidence. It's a correlation, but not a causal relationship. And and a lot of folks on the right are saying, no, it's actually a causal relationship. When I would say I don't think the evidence is there to make that case, at least uh, convincingly in my mind. That's my point. Yeah, I agree with that. But if you take it back to the the politics of it, um, you know, it, it's 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 it, it, it. What could a Democrat possibly do then? You know, I mean, if, if if the way you're looking at this is, well, 
Democrats tend to be um, uh, in power in urban areas and urban areas for other reasons have more crime. And 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 therefore, it's going to be you know relatively easy for Republicans to tar Democratic politicians with the, the the brush of crime. Well, even on your accounting of it, none of that has to do with Democratic policies. So so, how could Democratic policies um, be changed to address sure. that? Yeah, and that that's the part where I say is is not is not fair at all because maybe there are policies that could change that, but even if there were, they would likely be at the city and the state level and not necessarily at the congressional level. So yeah, that's the part where there is a disconnect, but most people don't know enough about how politics actually works kind of at that ground level or uh, not enough people know to make that connection. And so that's what's taken advantage of, certainly. So yeah, in that that sense, I agree. And that takes us back to your original, my question back to you, which you were saying you think the Dems need to move away from some kind of wokeism or something. And, you know, again, I'm kind of challenging you, you know, what could they move away from? What policy are they pursuing that, that, that you think is either wrong on the merits or even if it's right on the merits, you know, is harming them politically? Like what actual policies? Yeah. And, and I guess I would say that it's not really anything that the congressional demo that the main that mainstream congressional democrats have introduced nothing i can think of that has any kind of realistic chance of passing at any point but of course there are those folks on the extremes and then the question becomes i think well can you distance yourself from those folks on the extremes if you're say a centrist democrat like i am uh in a way that's both convincing enough to uh, maybe the small number of undecided or potential swing voters without actually kind of doing a disservice to your very real commitments to what I would call non-woke social justice. And that's a, that's a difficult, that's a difficult thing to do, you know? And so for instance, why I, while I think that uh, AOC is kind of way to the left of me on a lot of things, I think there's a, a kernel of value in, in almost everything she's talking about and trying to make those fine distinctions to voters who are are necessarily not going to be enmeshed in politics in the same way that say you or I are it it's that's a that's a really tough message messaging challenge and so on that and you mentioned that and I, I certainly agree that it is a is a big messaging problem for Democrats. Yeah. So, so yeah, I don't I don't see I, I think you know messaging is always something that that politicians are gonna have to think about a lot, but I, I just don't see I don't really recommend any kind of policy changes to the Dems. I, I don't think they need to have a rethinking of, um, well, we're pursuing policies that the public doesn't like. So we better change gears. Um, I, I think that 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 would not be helpful. Um, for them, okay. I guess is what I'm saying. All right. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about some changes that we're going to see in the next Congress and what we think about that. And I think the biggest thing, at least on the House side, is that sort of the old guard, literally the old guard is mostly going to be a, a out of power. Uh, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi said she's not going to seek re-election to a leadership role in the next Congress. And she's been uh, she's led the Democrats since 2003, so almost two decades. Her number two, Steny Hoyer, he's 82. He said he's also not going to be seeking a leadership position. And so the last of that kind of big three, Jim Clyburn, he's also 82. He will. He does plan on uh, be still staying in the leadership. It looks like he has the support to do that. But the number four spot of assistant leader. And this really opens the door for kind of a new generation 
of Democratic leadership in the House. And it looks right now that uh, like Hakeem Jeffries is going to be kind of the consensus pick to lead the House Democrats. He's 52, which is, you know, young enough to be maybe not quite Pelosi's grandson, but certainly his kid. Um, and if, if he's elected, he's going to be the first black person to lead a political party in Congress, which is not nothing. Um, and also, he's only been in Congress since 2013. So that's a pretty impressively quick rise from uh not even being a member to all of a sudden leading a party in Congress. Uh, so what do you think about the leadership shakeup in the House? Well, you know, I, I am a huge admirer of Nancy Pelosi, and she she will be a tough act to follow. But it was it was necessary. I mean, you can't keep going with octogenarians forever. There has to be a generational shift. And, uh, you know, this is the right time for it. Um, you know, the, 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 the Dems did lose the majority. So it's it's time for it's the right time for a shift. And it looks to me like they're going to perfectly good uh, people to be in the leadership. I, I could think of other people I would have also been happy to see in the leadership, but I, the names I'm hearing seem, you know, completely fine to me. So I, I, I think it's a good move. Yeah. And I agree, but there, there certainly is, there's some resistance from the left wing of the party feeling like, well, Jeffries is another one of those kind of wall street, big money, centrist Democrats, and we're not going to really shake things up in a big way, that sort of thing. And, and I understand the arguments, but I think that those are, those are, that's a losing political argument because for the Democrats to be able to build any sort of a majority in 2024 or beyond, those are exactly the kind of districts they're going to need to win back. And so a more kind of far left leadership is not going to be, I don't think, the sort of leadership to do that. Right. And I mean, just to add to that point, um, one thing that uh, Pelosi and, and Biden were very effective at, in my view, is um, they, they had good open communications with the left wing of the party, and they incorporated a lot of policy ideas from the left wing of the party. And I think a good a good leaders can do that even while they're positioning themselves as centrist. So I, I have no doubts that Hakeem Jeffries will be able to do that as well. Yeah, I would expect so, too. And, and then, of course, on the House side, Kevin McCarthy, everyone sort of expected him to become the next speaker. Looks like that's going to be the case, though he did have to win a leadership vote over the uh, former House Freedom Caucus chair, uh, Andy Biggs. And that was wasn't close. But the fact that there was some opposition, uh, what do you take anything away from from that? And also, I guess, what's your take on sort of the the challenges that face Kevin McCarthy with a, just a razor thin? It could just be a three seat majority or so uh, Republican majority in the 118th Congress. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's a similar thin majority to what Nancy Pelosi had to work with. And uh, she was extremely effective at holding her caucus together. Um, I will say I think Kevin McCarthy is no Nancy Pelosi. And I, I think he will have a much harder time holding his caucus together. Um, uh, you know, not only because he's a weaker person, which I think he is, but 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 also because I think very many members of his caucus don't have any legislative agenda they want to advance anyhow. They really just want to focus totally on investigations and 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 not get anything actually done. And 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 so, you know, they don't even have that incentive to try to work with him to maintain party discipline to get things done. And that's only compounded by the fact that of course they don't control the Senate or the White House. So, you know, even if they maintained a ton of discipline and kept all the Republicans together and and passed bills that advanced a conservative agenda. Those bills are not going to be taken up in the Senate or sent to the yeah. White House. And if they were, they'd be vetoed in the White House. So I think, you know, we're really looking at a, a kind of a two year clown show with um, 
lots and lots of investigations and not much else happening. And certainly government shutdowns and probably impeachment votes. And uh, I would I would also think we're going to see the first time in American history where beyond just um, threatening not to raise the debt ceiling, my sense is that that will actually happen this wow. time and that Let's... the U.S. will start stop start defaulting on U.S. bonds and things like that. For the well, first I time. hope you're wrong about that. I know you're right about the investigations. I mean, Jim Jordan and oh, I'm blanking on the other guy have already announced that they're they're gearing up the works to an investigation of, well, it's not exactly going to be a Hunter Biden investigation. They've said we're focusing on that basically that's not a question of whether or not Hunter Biden's a bad guy. He is. We're focusing on what the president knew and when he knew it, that sort of thing. So absolutely, that's going to happen. I'll also, though, point out that I think there's potentially a big difference between working with a majority of seven or eight, which is what the Democrats have typically had, depending on vacancies at the time, and the, and the majority of what looks like it might be three or four, right? And and you have Thomas Massey coming out and uh, and saying, hey, if, if this is the case, you know, I could perhaps be a caucus of one and I'll be able to stop all kinds of stuff and get my way, you know, and, and that that makes it a lot tougher. So the wiggle room is, is, is not just minimal, it's almost none. And you're right, the fact that everyone knows that there's nothing that no serious legislative proposal that House Republicans are going to be able to pass that will actually become law kind of gives them license, if you will, to kind of be more out there, certainly. And and I expect it to be uh, uh, pr- pretty rough, certainly, especially with, like I said, coming right out of the gate, the Biden, the Hunter Biden investigation. Yeah, I mean, I think, in fact, the, the, um, the only mysteries, I suppose, to me are going to be things like, you know, clearly most of those House Republicans are just chomping at the bit to vote out articles of impeachment against Biden, uh, maybe even against Fauci and people like that. But I I don't I I predict that they will not be able to get to hold their majorities together for that, because, you know, for instance, I was talking a minute ago about those um, suburban New York City districts. Um, That would be an extremely toxic vote for those guys. Yeah. Right. You know, you only you only need to have, you know, five Republicans who are, you know, elected from blue states and who really, you know, can't really cast that impeachment vote. That, that's all it's going to take to actually make it impossible for them to get that impeachment vote. Yep. Yeah, I, I think I think that's right, actually. So, well, you know, let's let's look at the, the Senate side. We haven't talked about them yet, uh, because on, on the Senate side, while things are well, will remain just about the same, the Democrats might actually end up picking up uh, one one seat. We'll see what happens in Georgia. Mitch McConnell, for the first time in 15 years, actually was faced with a challenge for Republican minority leadership. Uh, Rick Scott challenged him. And in the vote, which we're this is a private vote, but these things leak like sieves. We were told McConnell got 37 votes to Scott's 10. And, you know, Scott has been very critical of how McConnell has managed the Republican Party, but McConnell, sorry, McConnell in turn has questioned how Scott has done his job as head of the National Republican Senatorial Committee after some pretty clearly disappointing results for Senate Republicans. So do you, do you read anything into that challenge to McConnell's leadership in the Senate, how that might change things at all? I think it was purely performative. I, I don't think there was ever a minute when anyone, including Scott or McConnell, thought there was any chance that this challenge was anything other than theater. Um, but I think what, what Scott was was trying to do was to signal to Trump and to the Trump loyalists, um, yeah. you know, th- th- that he's one of them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that that's the only thing that that was about at all. Yeah, I, um, I agree. I have, I have heard 
you agree with that. I have heard people in Kentucky talking about, um, I don't really believe this, but I've, I've heard people in Kentucky saying that they think McConnell might not finish out his term, that he might retire before the end of his term. Um, now that it's clear that he, even though he's still the minority leader, he's not, not never going to be the majority leader again. Um, I, I, you know, I don't really buy that either. Um, yeah. I think there, there's, you know, a lot of Kentucky Republicans don't love McConnell and, you know, think that they get someone like Massey in there and they're very excited about that. But I, I don't, you know, I, I think he will ride out his term. He will be the um, minority leader the whole time. One thing I do want to say about the Georgia election, uh, you and I, I think, both predicted that uh, Warnock's more likely to hang on. And, yep. and I stand by that for sure. Um, I, I think one thing that I, I, I haven't heard talked about enough uh, in other reporting is why would it matter whether they get 50 or 51? A lot of people are saying it probably doesn't matter that much because 50 is already majority as long as. Kamala Harris can can break a tie. But I think one thing that's extremely significant about it um, is it it changes the procedures needed for committees to issue subpoenas, right? Because all all of the committees are evenly divided in a a 50-50 Senate. Um, So so any standing committee with subpoena power, um, there's going to be a deadlock vote uh, in, in many cases. You know, if the Senate wanted to do anything like investigate January 6th or Trump or something like that. It, it would be hard for something like the Senate Judiciary Committee to do that because the Ju- Judiciary Committee itself could not issue a subpoena mm, gotcha. um, on, on a divided vote. And there, there's mechanisms where they could then send that request up to the full floor. But that's not something that's going to be used every day to run a routine kind of oversight investigation. So uh, a 5149 gives the, um, the the Dems uh, one more vote on every committee than the Republicans will have. That's oh, an interesting um, point. Yeah, so, I thought of that. Yeah. So, so that opens up a world of uh, a world of opportunities. Um, you know, I mean, the, the Senate's obviously not going to run something like the uh, January 6th committee that the House was running because the Senate has to run on a much more um, uh, bipartisan basis. But but the Senate could pick up the January 6th investigation if you had a 5149 Senate and just run it through the ordinary Senate Judiciary Committee. And all the Republicans on that committee would have their role. You know, they'd be able to bring in their witnesses. They'd be able to question the witnesses. But the, the key thing is that now the Dems would have the subpoena power to keep that going, um, which they, they couldn't have done in the, in the last Congress. So I think that's the most significant difference. Um, I still think with both Cinema and Manchin being in there, it's going to be, you know, still difficult to pass a lot of legislation, whether it's... Um, 50 or 51. Yeah, and, 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 it, yeah it wouldn't matter yeah. because with the House and Republican control, but it does give the Biden administration maybe a little more wiggle room with, with some nominations, I would think, as well, potentially. Yeah, I think there's, there's 85 judicial vacancies yeah. today, and I ex- expect that they will be able to fill all 85 of them in the next two years. Yeah, they'll certainly give it a shot, that's for sure, and I hope so. But anyway, so yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah. the less the Senate has legislation to work on, the more time they yeah. have to, to do confirmation. Here. Exactly. Exactly. Well, you know, I, I want to get to 2024 because we need to look forward already. But before we do, I just want to take a quick break and then we will get right back and look to the future. So, Ken, uh, this week, Donald Trump made official what well everyone already knew was coming, his candidacy for the presidency in 2024. And it seems to me that a lot of the Republican establishment is hoping 
They can move on from Trump by uniting behind uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, though I should point out that uh, Trump still has, you know, some pretty significant hold over an awful lot of Americans. And by the way, more than $100 million in his Save America Leadership Pack. And you might say, wait a second, that pack can't directly contribute to Trump's campaign. You're right. But there are plenty of more or less legal ways for it to be transferred to third-party PACs or dark money organizations. The point being is there, there's a lot of money and a lot of support there. Um, so, and in addition to DeSantis, I should point out, there are a number of other Republicans who are potential challengers to Trump. There's VP Mike Pence, just has a new book out. Uh, Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, and I don't know, I guess we could throw Ted Cruz into the mix. He would appreciate it, I'm sure. But, uh, but, but you know, it, it's it's obviously very early, and Trump is the only officially announced candidate. But weirdly, and in a bad way, this reminds me a lot of 2016. You know, you had a Republican establishment. They were trying to clear the field by throwing their weight behind the popular Florida ex or and kind of charisma challenge Florida governor, right, Jeb Bush. And and I'm wondering, Ken, do you think do you think that the Trump magic is gone, or at least maybe? minimized enough to keep him from the nomination in 2024 or, or what? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think we can rule out Pence already. <laughs> you think? <laughs> I think he's not going to be the nominee. Um, He'll sell some books maybe. Trump, <laughs> yeah. And with Trump, I, you know, you mentioned the hundred million dollar uh, war chest, but uh, I have faith that he's going to try to grift a lot of that money and not actually spend it on his campaign. He'd much rather find ways to put that in his pocket. Um, so I, I don't think all that's going into his campaign uh, if he stays true to form. Um, I think he has tremendous power to destroy other people's candidacies. I, I think he could block someone like a DeSantis um, from, from, from uh, really uh, moving forward and claiming the nomination. And, and I think that's really his main power is destructive. Now, I guess what you were getting at with the 2016 analogy is if he manages to destroy all the others, then he's the last one standing. And yeah, I can't I can't rule out that scenario, but I, I actually, you know, I'd be fine with that scenario. I mean, that to me. All right. You know, let let him do it. Yeah. You mean because you think that uh, Trump is the most beatable of the uh, likely Republican contenders for 2024? Yeah, I mean, he's he's a proven three time loser now. Right. He's he he actually lost the 2016 popular vote. So he never had a majority of the country, but he did win that election. But then he lost the Congress big time in 2018. He lost the presidency in 2020. And um, I think most of the analytics that have been done this week say he cost the Republicans about five percentage points of, of, of the vote, um, you know, that the particular candidates that he endorsed um, underperformed by about five points compared to where people thought Republicans might be in those states. Um, and everybody, I think, is considering this election to be a bad result for the Republicans, even though, you know, they did pick up the House. So it's not a miserable result for them. But I don't think um, uh, Trump gets the credit for that. So, I, yeah, I think he, he just shows again and again that he keeps losing. And even with Republicans, his base gets more and more tarnished. And if he does destroy, you know, if he destroys the political viability of some of his opponents to clear a path for himself, you know, a, a DeSantis or, or, or a Youngkin or whoever. You know, that, that's going to make it harder for him to unify what's left of the Republican Party, even compared to where we were in, in 18 or 20 or 22. So, yeah, I, I think he'd be almost absurdly uh, easy to beat. And so it wouldn't bother me if it goes that, that direction. But I just I can't predict this yeah. this far out. I, 
I, I follow the logic and, and uh, you know, we, we've been doing this, this pod, I've been doing this podcast since 2015. So I, I, I recall back to those days in 2016 where I felt like a very eerily similar logic. I remember following the Republican primaries and say, you go Donald Trump, because I'm pretty sure that's the one candidate that Hillary Clinton's going to wipe the floor with. And I wasn't really thrilled with Hillary Clinton, but I'm like, yeah, she's weak, but he's just atrociously weak. And, and, and that's my concern is that once you get to those final two, and you mentioned it earlier in the show that, that we're, we're so polarized that you can have a Herschel Walker who runs a neck and neck campaign with, with, with a Raphael Warnock, which blows my mind. Some Republicans are saying the same thing. You can have a, a Democrat who's clearly suffering the ill effects of a stroke and wins over uh, a Republican. And so candidate quality, you know, it doesn't necessarily matter a whole lot in a, in a just about 50-50 country. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a little less sanguine about this than you are, I think. Well, I, I see. I, I completely acknowledge the point you're making. But the thing I'd say against it is, um, you know, why is this not the same as 2016? Well, we actually had Trump in the White House for four years. Um, and uh, a couple of the states that he won, um, Pennsylvania and Michigan in particular, I'd say, um, there's no chance that he could win those states again. Uh, and and he has, it, because of his, his, pre- his, his presidency, those states are, are, are blue states. And, you know, Fetterman was up by more than 10 points until he had the stroke and he won even with the stroke. Yeah. You know, and, and I think and, and look, you know, Whit- Whitman up in Michigan, not only won by better than 60, 40 in her gubernatorial reelection, but she she turned the legislature blue. The whole Supreme Court's now blue. Those states are pushed so squarely into the blue camp that that that's all the significant change you really need to say that um, 2016 couldn't be repeated. Yeah, I, I I hear what you're saying. I also I also am concerned about some signs of democratic weakness in the Southwest and some other states. But yeah, the numbers seem to me to suggest that that what you were saying should happen. But I guess I've been burned once and burned in an incredibly significant <laughs> way. And so, uh, yeah, very reluctant to go there. But, you know, l- let's talk about the Democratic side as well. It seems that President Biden is intent on running for reelection, despite the fact that a significant percentage of voters have said they don't want him to run again. There was this New York Times Siena College poll from this summer. Almost two thirds of Democrats wanted someone else to run in 2024. And even if, let's say, Joe Biden decided he wasn't going to run, it's not like there's a clear, really obvious successor. I mean, Vice President Harris doesn't seem particularly strong. People have been talking about California Governor uh, Gavin Newsom. And he's no far left progressive, but I don't know if a, if a California governor is the sort of candidate Democrats need to win in 2024. So I, it's not like there's a whole lot of strength on the uh, on the Democratic side. I don't think. What do you think? Yeah, I, I actually the, I agree with that, and I, I think um, I think I think Biden should run again, um, partly for the reason that you just said. You know, you have to think about well, if not Biden, then who? And, you know, Biden has uniquely uh, managed to hold uh, a kind of diverse Democratic uh, coalition together. You know, most Democrats are still behind him. And, you know, you could look at it and say, well, his public approval ratings haven't been that great. Um, You know, the Republicans have had all these years to bash him. You know, he's not getting any younger and his age could be an issue. And, you know, all those things are true. But yet, nonetheless, he got elected. He defeated Trump. Um, I, I think that most Democrats remain satisfied with his presidency. 
Um, it was not a drag on the, uh, these congressional elections, even though people thought it would be. Um, so I, I think, you know, really, if it ain't broke, why fix it would kind of be how, how I would look at this. Um, I, I think it might be good for him to get um, Kamala Harris off the ticket. I think she has not helped herself in, in the two years she's been vice president so far. She has, you know, no significant um, accomplishments of any sort. And maybe he needs to give her more space to have some if uh, if he wants her to stay his running mate. You know, I actually I mentioned a minute ago Gretchen Whitmer. I'd be uh-huh. pretty delighted if Gretchen Whitmer became his, his running mate instead of uh, Kamala Harris. And, uh, um, you know, I think she's just a real there's a lot more energy and excitement around, you know, her, her candidacies. And she really did take uh, Michigan from being an extremely purple state to being a, a totally blue state. Yeah, I, I think that I'd also like to see kind of a move from octogenarian leadership in, in the presidency uh, as well. And uh, Whitmer is someone who I, I, I think very, very highly of. And there, there are a few others as well. I mean, I've been, I've, for years, I was a big fan of Pete Buttigieg, but I, know, I don't think he's very electable necessarily for some very unfortunate and, and, and bigoted reasons. I would I would hazard to guess. Maybe I'm wrong about that. I hope I am. But uh, that's kind of my take on the presidential side that Biden's the best of a kind of weak class as it as it stands right now, I think. But but, you know, then there's this, you know, I'm good to judge. Good. Can I say one thing? Yeah, I'm please. Judge. I, I, you know, I, I feel like, you know, I, I know exactly what you're saying about the, the bad and bigoted reasons, but it is interesting to me. And we're going to talk about this in a minute or two that uh, bipartisan coalitions in the House and the Senate have passed uh, same-sex marriage bills. The House is going to have to vote again to reconcile it to the version that the Senate passed. But there's no doubt we're going to get a same-sex marriage bill that's going to be passed on a bipartisan basis within the next week or two. So the, the, the public may be changing on that issue. I actually think Buttigieg has a different problem that he wants to run, which is that uh, he was Secretary of Transportation during the worst supply chain crisis in mm. American history. And I think it's going to be easy to paint him as a failure. And, uh, you know, that he's going to have to probably have some kind of um, successes yeah. uh, before before he's really um, ready to run again. But luckily, he's young. And I think, you know, time is on his side. And, and that's also true on the issue of yeah. um, of his, his sexual yeah. orientation as yeah. well, I think. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of a I'm kind of a sucker for technocratic elites, you know, can write a good position paper, yeah. I guess. So it's, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> but uh, but, you know, if we look at the Senate uh, prior to these midterms. I was envisioning a scenario where Republicans would potentially have a filibuster-proof Senate majority by 2025, thinking, you know, okay, they'll maybe get the 52, 53 in 2022, and the map is incredibly favorable for 2024. Democrats are defending 23 seats to just 11 for Republicans, and I think, well, I could see a, I could look at a map where they get the rest of the way there. Now, that seems a lot less likely to me now, a pickup of 10 to 11 seats hard for me to envision with that, even with that good Republican map. But also, I find it hard to see Democrats having a great chance of keeping control of the Senate past 2024. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that. It's an uphill battle, for sure. I don't think it's impossible. Um, you know, it will be a presidential year. So there'll be more turnout, more more money. And I think those things will basically help the Dems. You know, here in Ohio, you know, we have probably one of the most vulnerable seats with Sherrod Brown coming up yep. for election in 24 in a state that's gone increasingly red. Um, but there's been a few times before where it looked like Sherrod Brown couldn't keep his seat. And he, he always has. 
And I think one advantage that he has in Ohio that really can't be replicated by anybody else is, you know, as the kind of white working class, non-college educated Ohio kind of switched parties from the from being Democrats to being Trump type Republicans, J.D. Vance voters. Um, these are all people that have always voted for Sherrod Brown. And I think it's just a lot easier for them to think of him as an exception because they've always voted for him before mm. and they still like him. You know, and, and that that's not, you know, Tim Ryan might be a very similar candidate to Sherrod Brown. But the one thing Tim Ryan didn't have going for him that Sherrod Brown always does is, you know, they voted for him in the last sure. They voted for Brown in the last election. They voted for Brown in the election before that. They voted for Brown in the election before that. They like him. You know, and so I, I think he has a possibility of hanging on. You know, Montana, similarly, like Tester's got to be another extremely endangered uh, Democrat. Um, but he's popular in Montana. It's a, it's a it's a small state, and if national money goes in there, you know he'll be able to get his message out. And uh, um, you know, I, so I don't think it's impossible. But yeah, absolutely, I think if you're just saying what are the odds, the odds are that the Dems can't hold the Senate in 24. But you know, the, the things you know, all kinds of things could change by then. Sure. And uh, um, yeah, so so we just I think it's too early to really say. Now, are you going to make that same argument for Joe Manchin in West Virginia? <laughs> I think Manchin can win in West Virginia. Oh, really? Wow. Okay. Sure. Wow. Yeah. I, I yeah. think he's I think he's toast. So we we we'll see about that. But but uh, yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> didn't he win last time by like better than sixty percent of yeah, the vote? No, his last time his his margins have been going down. I think the last time it was actually reasonably close. I'd have to check to be sure. But I I would be stunned if Joe Manchin wins another term. But again, you know, I'm certainly hoping you're right about yeah. that. That would be great you for. Know, I, I would I would put him in the same category as as I was putting Sherrod Brown sure. even more so. That, yeah. yeah, he's he's got a very high uh, uh, brand recognition, right? Like the the West Virginians know Joe Manchin, and so I think that sort of eclipses a little bit the party affiliation stuff. Yeah, well, I, I think to a bit, but probably not enough to overcome the other things. But we we, we shall see in a few years. Um, but you know, you mentioned the the same sex marriage in, in relation to uh, Pete Buttigieg, and and uh, you know, this is we were going to talk about. Congress is actually doing some bipartisan work here because uh, this week the Senate, uh, sixty three to thirty seven, voted to overcome a filibuster on that Respect for Marriage Act. There were twelve Republicans who joined all fifty Democrats supporting it, and as you also mentioned. The House passed a similar measure this summer. It was 267, 157, 47 Republicans voting in favor. And what this would do would repeal the Defense of Marriage Act, which defined marriage for uh, for federal purposes as a union of one man and one woman, and also allowed states to refuse to recognize same-sex marriage from other states. Now, with two Supreme Court holdings that came after that, United States versus Windsor in 2013 and Obergefell versus Hodges in 2015, those effectively invalidated DOMA. But there are people on the left who are concerned that given the fact that there have been some significant changes on the court since then, and both of those were five to four decisions, and also given what Justice Thomas said in Dobbs about how prior rulings relying on substantive due process should be reconsidered, that hey, now is the time to put in some federal legal protection in case, uh, you know, in case states decide to go in this direction. I wanted to get your take specifically on whether you think this is just Democrats teeing up an issue that's going to be a tough vote for some Republicans, given the national mood on on this, as you, you pointed out, very favorable, generally speaking. Or do you think that there are real grounds for concern here? 
Well, I think it's both. Um, okay. I, I think the, um, the the politics of it alone make it worth doing. You know, not not only the electoral politics, but the 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 symbolism, the the completely beneficial symbolism of of a kind of statement of American values that that we're you know we're for tolerance and equality, and it's nice for our elected officials to stand up for that. So I, I think I think there's a lot of reason to do it that are political on on kind of low politics and high politics levels. Um, I think the practical significance of it would be a little further down the road, which is to say. I don't think that the Supreme Court in 2023 is going to overrule uh, Obergefell and Windsor. Um, but I do think that beginning with Dobbs, the Supreme Court in 2023 is going to keep deciding additional cases after Dobbs that continue to weaken the foundation uh, that underlies Obergefell and Windsor. And, uh, and so I, I think, an, an, you know, if, if the court personnel never changes, um, or at least the, the, the majority block never changes, um, I think we're probably, you know, five years away from the overruling of Obergefell and Windsor. So so I think uh, in that sense, this this legislation will serve a good prophylactic purpose. Yeah, and I should point out that there are something like 25 states that have provisions in their state constitutions that actually include bans on same-sex marriage or similar unions that were invalidated by uh, by those Supreme Court decisions. And, you know, I, maybe when we look at national trends here— Pretty clearly, this has been a, a sea change, right? Because DOMA was was strong bipartisan majorities in the mid '90s, signed into law by President Clinton, and and there's been a huge change, absolutely for the better, as far as I'm concerned. But so maybe this isn't a winning issue in say Wisconsin or Michigan. But you take a look at there's polling in Mississippi and Arkansas, for instance, from just last year that suggests that there's still majority opposition to same-sex marriage. And I'm not saying that leads anywhere, but I, I don't think it's something that we can just dismiss as being uh, completely performative. Let's make Republicans have a bad vote sort of thing. Yeah, that's the same thing I'm saying. Yeah. I, I think just, just like it took 50 years for the uh, anti-choice movement to get Roe uh, overruled, but they were working on it the whole time. Um, you know, I think that's the posture, you know, that we have to think about with the Supreme Court on same-sex marriage, that there there are people bringing cases that are laying foundations to get Obergefell and Windsor overruled, and 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 they're going to win a lot of those cases. So, you know, there's going to be, you know, there's not going to be a full frontal attack on, on same-sex marriage next year, but there's, there's going to be, you know, kind of sideways attacks on it that come up in different contexts, and that that does, you know, the more the, the doctrinal underpinnings get weakened by other yeah. cases, the, the more it could fall later. So I think it's necessary. I also want to just say one thing about the bill itself that the Senate passed. I, I really like it. There, there's one thing about it that is different than the House bill, and it's why the House is going to have to revote. And it seems like it's weaker than the House bill, but I think it's actually stronger. Hmm, okay. um, so, 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 so the House bill would have um, more or less codified uh, Obergefell. And said, you know, same-sex marriage is illegal everywhere, and uh, I'm sorry, same-sex marriage is legal yeah, everywhere. Yeah. Every 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 state has to celebrate it. The bans on it are, are the state bans are, are preempted by federal law. The the, the Senate version um, it, it looks weaker because it says states can decide for themselves whether they want to allow or not allow um, same-sex marriage uh, to be celebrated, and and those states that have these state constitutional rules that say. Um, there's no same-sex marriage in this state. Um, those would sort of spring back into effect in a way because it wouldn't be possible to get a same-sex marriage in that state. Um, but then the bill says, um, but if anyone gets a same-sex marriage in any state where it is legal, 
that still has to be recognized right. um, in all 50 states. Now, that does mean, you know, people who live in Mississippi, you know, they, they may have to, you know, travel, travel, you know, up to up to, um, you know, t- take a trip up to New York or something to get married. But then when they go back to, to, to Mississippi, they're still married. And, and the reason I like that better is I think it, it's more it, it's as a practical matter, it's equally effective. Um, and as a legal matter, it, it's it's more bulletproof in terms of current Supreme Court doctrines, because the 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 House bill depended on the reading of the Equal Protection Clause that the Supreme Court adopted in uh, Obergefell and Windsor. And, and if, if, if the court overruled those cases, um, then they could overrule the House version of the bill. Right. Um, whereas the, 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 um, the, the Senate bill depends only on the full faith and credit clause of the Constitution, which gives Congress the enumerated power to set rules by which states must give uh, full faith and credit to legal acts of other states. Right. And so it, it doesn't require any use of equal protection principles or anything like that. It's just dictating to the states that this is a legal act in one state that you must give full faith and credit to. And I think even even today's, even Clarence Thomas, I think, would not vote to overrule that. And so I think that makes it just much more judicially bulletproof. So it would potentially impose a, a real world, world burden on some people who couldn't just go down to their county courthouse and get married. They'd have to go to another state. Yeah, I think it would impose that burden. That's not to say the other state couldn't have a Zoom, Zoom marriage. Mm, OK, like that. just have some yeah, certain so. residency or non-residency requirements, just kind of work that out so that they could uh, they could make that happen. Sure. Okay. Yeah, I mean Nevada doesn't have any residency requirements right. for marriage already. Right? Yep, yeah. Yep. Yeah, I think I think a state could 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 make under its own state law there's no residency requirement for marriage and there's no physical presence in the state requirement for marriage. You could just zoom into a wedding chapel and get married by the wedding chapel that's in that state and and that would have to be recognized under under this this statute. So okay. I, I don't think it's it imposes severe inconveniences, but I I think the benefit of it is it makes it an easier vote for these Republicans, which keeps it bipartisan, and it makes it more bulletproof uh, in the Supreme Court. Yeah, good point. All right. Well, I think we have time for one more story. And why don't we kind of move overseas at least a little bit? Uh, the group of 20, the G20 nations, met this week in Bali, Indonesia, uh, and that gave President Joe Biden and, and Chinese President Xi Jinping a chance to meet. Well, they've met before, but this is the first time they've met as national leaders. They've known each other for like a decade or more. And I think both Biden and Xi attempted to sort of dial down the tension uh, between their countries, at least in some way. I mean, she said China has never sought to alter the current international order, does not meddle in the American domestic politics, and has no intention of challenging and replacing the United States. Biden says, I absolutely believe there's there need not be a new Cold War, but and he didn't believe that there was an imminent Chinese invasion of Taiwan. But he did add, you know, I'm not saying this is kumbaya. And and she reportedly told Biden that Taiwan is a red line issue for the U that the U.S. should definitely not cross. So I'm wondering, Ken, do you think this is just sort of typical diplomatic speak or do you think this meeting between Biden and Xi mattered in some sort of substantive way? You know, I'm, I'm afraid it's just typical diplomatic speak. I mean, my, my, my concern really is the Taiwan issue more than the others. But uh, sure. I, I, I think things have, um, you know, China is getting increasingly uh, uh, aggressive uh, towards Taiwan. And I think, you know, there's this situation now where both the U.S. and, and China, I think, are deeply concerned that we don't want a hot war 
between the U.S. and China. Um, but but China seems like it's willing to keep trying to you know just push the envelope a little bit farther um, into what kind of incursions against Taiwan it's going to make. And this is following you know a fairly successful campaign that they had to to end democracy in Hong Kong. Um, and again, just through slow and steady means, and and you know mainly non-military means, but a little bit of flexing of military muscle. And I, I, I think it would be um, not 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 acceptable to me. I would say to see Taiwan go the way that Hong Kong seems to have gone, where it becomes uh, completely subsumed within China and loses the democracy that it's enjoyed. And uh, and I don't know that this really pushed the ball forward on that. I think I think the kind of words that both sides used. You know, make me think that China is going to keep pursuing the courses of action it's been pursuing, um, which are really like pushing a little bit more against uh, Taiwanese democracy. Um, and, you know, and and seemingly both sides saying, well, we, we can't have a military war over that. But the U.S. not really being that clear about what we can do about. I mean, I guess we have some sanctions against the semiconductors and things like that. But I don't I don't know where that's all headed. It, it alarmed me a bit. Yeah, because I mean, those those sanctions, I mean, uh, Donald Trump in his announcement speech talked about how tough he was and so forth. But those Biden very targeted uh, technology sanctions, those I, I, I would argue and a lot of people would argue are much tougher than anything Donald Trump did against China. And uh, in response, I think, in part to, you know, those very real concerns uh, about Taiwan. And and but I don't know, I, I wonder about that language, because so Biden says an invasion isn't imminent, right? That's, that's you know, yeah, yeah. does that mean like, well, in a year or two? And so I guess I'm wondering, what's your take? Do you see this as being something that's maybe inevitable is too strong of a word, but do you, do you think at some point in the, I don't know, next few years, do you see China as doing something much more, much more than just aggressive actions, but actually taking like a substantive kind of action to take over Taiwan in some way? Yeah, I do see that. Mm. I mean, I, I don't think it will look exactly like what Russia's doing in Ukraine. You know, I, I don't think China wants to roll in there, you know, and with, with tanks and start, start, start shooting up the island. Um, you know, and they didn't do that in Hong Kong, right? But in, in Hong Kong, they, they managed to completely supplant the old system and violate the treaties with the UK that had sort of guaranteed a certain level of um, Hong Kong independence for, for a period of time, you know, just through, um, a series of, of slow shows of force without a whole ton of actual uses of force. Um, and I, I think, I think we will see more and more of that. I mean, there's, there's, you know, some of the shows of force against Taiwan we've already seen include like shooting missiles right over the, the across the skies of Taiwan sure. and things like that. Um, yeah. And I, I think, I think we're going to just see more and more of that. I don't, I don't think China is thinking of backing away from that. I think they're accelerating that. But I, I don't know quite if even they have an end game of, you know, how do they keep accelerating that? What's the next step? But I think I think, you know, patience, I think they have a lot of patience. Yeah. And so I think to just kind of keep things going in the direction they've been going and continually slowly ratcheting up the pressure seems to me like a, a plan that they can execute for a while. Yeah, I mean, they obviously had certain advantages in Hong Kong, big advantages that they don't have in Taiwan. They don't have any kind of even quasi-legal authority there. And so that makes it much more challenging. And I agree with you that I, I can't picture them ever 
ratcheting down the pressure. But I think it gets to a point where they where they say, well, we've done what we can short of actual physical force. And that's kind of where it stays, I think. And so I, I, I guess I may be both more and less optimistic. I, I, I think that maybe something will happen, a, a significant change. But if it is, I think it's going to have to actually be some sort of a military incursion. And my hope is that the Chinese are too concerned about the enormous uncertainty and stability, world stability ramifications of that sort of thing to take that step anytime soon. So that's kind of my prediction there. Well, there's things like cyber attacks. Yeah, that's true. Like yeah. Attacks on the financial system. There's could be uh, blockades of, of shipping um, or, or, or um, you know, efforts to get China's whole sphere of influence to not do any trade with uh, Taiwan. So I think there's a lot more ways they can keep ratcheting up pressure. And, and even, on, in, even under our own uh, one China policy, um, it's ambiguous, right, about whether China has authority there. Because we, although although part of our policy is that we say that the, the status quo should be maintained and that there should be a peace has to be maintained in the in the in the across the streets of Taiwan. Um, we do actually the U.S. recognizes the ultimate sovereignty of, of the People's Republic of China over Taiwan. So that 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 does give them a, a, a bit of a legal leg to stand on, although, of course, you're right that it's not um, as strong of a legal leg as they had in, in Hong Kong, but it's something that they can build on. Yeah, no, that that those are those are good points. Absolutely. So I, I think I, I don't I don't expect to see anything, anything happen, any drastic like that anytime soon. Just with all the other uncertainty in the world, I would be surprised if China decided to just sort of, you know, throw a, the equivalent of, a, of an H-bomb in the toilet and, or a, sorry, cherry bomb in the toilet and walk away. Not an H-bomb. Thank God that would destroy a toilet. But anyway, um, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. But I I, again, I don't see China backing down and I don't see Taiwan backing down. And how does this end? Well, that's that's a, an excellent uh, and disturbing question, I think. So, yeah. One other thing yeah. on the G20 and, and China, um, one other thing I thought was interesting or worth noting and mentioning your thoughts on it. The G20 did issue a statement about the, the Ukraine war and, and and the statement on the Ukraine war, you know, basically said, um you know, uh, uh, war is unacceptable and there should be peace and stability. Um, but then it also said something along the lines of, uh, you know, not not all members of the G20 yep. um, agree. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah. And and so I, I was just trying to make sense of like, you know, what what that what, what to make of that. It was it was I found that very difficult to parse. And, and maybe, you know, maybe you could say, well, China was bending very slightly in our direction by even allowing this statement to go out at all because they probably could have blockaded it or dissented from it. But then, um, you know, on the other hand, the statement goes out and sort of says they really don't agree with it. You know, and so I, I, I don't know. I don't know what to make of that. I wonder if you had thoughts. on. Well, that. you know, I, I kind of a similar reaction. I read some of the headlines saying Russia increasingly isolated after G20 statement. I was like, oh, that sounds good. OK. And I did the same thing you did. I pulled up the statement and I was like, um, Okay, I'm not, I'm not seeing that. Yeah, exactly. No, I, yeah. I thought it was a. It was bland, even by the standards of a, a of one of those international organizations. Statement: War is bad, and we're against it. Okay, that's you know, it was yeah, it was pretty weak stuff. I thought so. I had the similar reaction to you. I didn't. I didn't see this as being. I guess you can argue, like you said, that okay, China at least allowed it to go out, but that's that's really kind of grasping at straws. I think. Yeah, I mean, they allowed it to go out, noting that there was a yeah, exactly within, yeah. within the G20. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, whatever. Yeah. But hey, you know, b- before we go, one of my favorite things about shows you do with Trey 
is well, I wish you know, that shouldn't be the, the favorite thing is the non-political thing at the end, right? But I love I love all of them, but I always enjoy your recommendations, and so I wanted to get one of those in before we uh, before we end the show today. Well, uh, Michael, this one comes not only as a recommendation to the listeners, but as an invitation uh, to you. Um, so um, the, my recommendation this week is for a, a book um, that is written by um, a friend of mine, but he's a extremely good writer. Um, his name is R.J. Smith. Um, he used to write for Cincinnati Magazine here in Cincinnati. He's since moved to Los Angeles. Um, but he wrote in the past, he wrote the best biography ever of the musician James Brown. And now, just just last week, he published um, another biography, and this one is of uh, Chuck Berry. Um, and it, it's called uh, um, uh, Chuck Berry, An American Life by R.J. Smith. Uh, and uh, it, it just came out. I've, I'm, I'm only about halfway through it, but I'm absolutely loving it. And uh, um, R.J. Smith will be here in town uh, in Cincinnati tomorrow, Saturday, at uh, Joseph Beth Books at 11 a.m., doing a, a book talk for the book and, and signing books. And I plan to be there, and I've invited you to come there as well, Michael. Oh, very cool. I, I am a big Chuck Berry fan, and that sounds like a, a fantastic read and a, and, and a great event. It's going on my list, that is for sure. All right. Well, with that, we uh, will actually, before we do close the show, I want to thank a few new supporters. Uh, Bob on Patreon, Bob, and also Florida Rep. Thank you guys so much. We really do appreciate your support of the show. Uh, and if you're not already a supporter, we hope you'll consider becoming one because without you guys, we, we just couldn't keep doing this week after week. And, and also, not just our thanks, but if, when you become a supporter, you get stuff like ad-free versions of everything we put out, our supporter-exclusive midweek show, and uh, there's other stuff at other levels of support. Check it all out. Go to patreon.com slash politicsguys. And if you want to support us on Venmo, we're at politicsguys. There's PayPal as well. You can find all the support links in the show notes every week as well as at politicsguys.com slash support. And if you'd like to get that midweek show I mentioned, but you're not in a financial position to support the show right now, totally not a problem. Shoot me an email, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will get you all set up with that. And, of course, whether you're a supporter or not, it definitely helps us, and it doesn't cost anything if you will subscribe, rate, and review the show on whatever podcast app you happen to be using, and share episodes on social media. And finally, a special thanks, as always, to our fantastic executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby. We'll be back with a new episode for you next week. We hope you'll join us.